You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, January 3rd, 2021. This week, we will take a look back at the stories we covered in the year 2021. In today's episode, we will review the second part of environmental stories from the last year. We will hear Nathaniel Weinzapfel speak with an IU researcher on dry lands. Cade Young covers lead-contaminated ash and debris after a prescribed burning. You will also hear from the environmental group Sunrise Bloomington. All that and more in Local Environmental Stories 2021 in Review, Part 2. Earlier this year, WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzapfel reported on an IU professor who was awarded a research grant from NASA to better understand the world's dry lands and their ecosystem. We turn to Weinzapfel for more. When you think of dry lands, what first comes to mind? What about a field of zebras galloping across the savannas of Africa? Or perhaps a rattlesnake slithering past cacti in the deserts of Arizona? Maybe you think of a herd of cattle munching their way through the Great Plains of the United States. Dryland ecosystems make up around 40% of the land in the United States, including the vast desert of the Southwest and the Great Plains. Similarly, drylands comprise 40% of the entire Earth's land surface. With this in mind, a better understanding of such a vast area of the globe proves necessary. Indiana University professor Natasha McBean shares a similar sentiment. She was recently awarded a grant from the NASA Research Opportunities in Space and Earth Sciences Carbon Cycle Program to do just that, to understand more about drylands and specifically their role in the carbon cycle and how climate change could affect the ecosystem. Last week, Professor McBean spoke with WFHB News about her work. My research into dry lands is primarily to understand the kind of ecosystem scale processes. So that's the interactions between vegetation and water and carbon cycling um, and how all of that is responding to climate change and also to land management change as well. Um, And mostly that's um, driven or motivated by a, a wider research sort of theme of mine, which is to understand global carbon cycling. Um, So we are obviously emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, um, and the land and the ocean uh, are taking up, they're absorbing about 50% of those emissions. And so we know that at kind of global scale number, but what we don't know is really which ecosystems, which regions, and which processes are driving that sort of what we call a sink of carbon. And we also don't know if we're going to sort of maintain that 50% reduction on our emissions into the future or not. So we need to understand that better. And it 
has been highlighted in the past sort of decade or so that semi-arid ecosystems, even and dryland ecosystems more broadly, um, are playing a big role in in the sort of interannual, sort of year-to-year variability in global carbon cycling. Um, and so we we want to understand that a bit better. And there are lots of people working in the field in dryland ecosystems, understanding processes. And that's been that work has been going on for a while. But where my research comes in is really scaling that up to broader scales, sort of regional to continental scales, and then up to the globe as well. Um, and a sort of second component of that is making sure that our process understanding of the carbon water um, vegetation dynamics is implemented into the, the kinds of global earth system models that we're using for uh, climate change projections for the IPCC, for example. With this broad overview of Professor McBean's work in mind, the experts shared more about drylands themselves and some of their characteristics. Drylands are um, inherently water-limited, and, and all uh, most of their ecosystem processes um, uh, are driven by moisture availability. And so that means that there's sort of less rainfall on average, and there is a kind of potential for evaporation, evapotranspiration. And so there are lots of different strategies in these ecosystems, a lot of different vegetation types um, and strategies for dealing with that kind of at least seasonal water stress and and year-to-year changes in water availability. Dry lands, um, you know, they cover about 40% of our land surface. Some of that is, is, you know, obviously the desert. So that takes up about, um, I guess, 7%. So I think, you know, one third of the land surface is, is kind of the semi-arid, um, sub-humid dry land ecosystems that have quite a bit of vegetation. They're kind of savannas or grasslands, etc. And they have a lot of sort of ecosystem services, we should say, and they support about just over a third of the world's population. Um, so they have tons of ecosystem services for those, that population, such as often these regions are used for grazing, for uh, livestock production, um, there's obviously uh, water uh, availability issues in, uh, in those ecosystems for the populations that need water. Um, we actually, in the U.S., I, I can't remember now the number, but we grow a lot of our crops in the U.S. Um, in the southwest and west, uh, where it's actually water limited, which I don't think always makes that much sense, um, especially some of the crops that need a lot of water and and therefore are irrigated a lot. So uh, these are the kinds of ecosystem services that uh, come from these ecosystems. They're also really diverse, and they've got a lot of different um, flora and fauna that are also, you know, often beneficial for various, you know, for food, for culture, medicines, et cetera. So lots of different purposes and supporting a lot of of the world's population. Dryland ecosystems are extremely complex and important for many key species that depend on them, as well as humans who depend on them for their livelihood and survival. A key part of MacBean's research is to understand how climate change and other human effects could impact drylands. Climate change, I'd say, is sort of is one of the big pressures. Um, other pressures are kind of just population increase and land management. You know, like I just mentioned, are we really managing the land well in these ecosystems? So often overgrazing them and overcultivating them, and maybe not 
growing the right crops, etc. That's that's one thing. And climate change interacts with that. Um, the, the biggest things that climate change is going to do in these ecosystems is change the water availability. And so that's a couple of things. One is um, changing rainfall variability. So it, it sometimes means more intense storms. Um, for example, the southwest U.S. is driven by the North American monsoon, which provides the water availability. And that's not necessarily going to go away, but the, the characteristics of it might change. You know, if there are more intense storms, then that's not necessarily a good thing. We might lose a lot of that water as, as runoff. Um, if it's just too intense for ecosystems to manage. But there's also with climate change, a lot of drought. Most of the west and southwest of the U.S., for example, has been in a mega drought for most of this century. Um, and that's we think, going to be exacerbated with climate change. So these ecosystems really rely on water availability. They're adapted to the kind of seasonal changes in water availability. And as that change and changes and potentially gets more you know, extreme droughts in the future with climate change, the, the plants and, and all the ecosystem processes are going to have to adapt to that. Um, and, and the second thing I'd say with climate change that I think we're seeing a lot now is um, potentially increased risk of wildfire. There is an interplay there with land management um, and building and, and sort of urban expansion and how we've managed fires in the past. But um, we think that, you know, one of the reasons why wildfires might be increasing is increasing temperatures. And, and again, dry land ecosystems are well adapted to deal with fire over, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. But um, as these changes are sort of accelerating, the, the vegetation will have to adapt to that as well. Dryland ecosystems and how they relate to the global carbon cycle and global climate is a topic that requires more understanding. As mentioned before, Professor McBean was recently awarded a $900,000 grant from NASA to provide funding for more research into drylands. McBean described how this grant came about and what her team's research will do to improve the mapping of drylands and better understand the potential environmental effects on the ecosystem. So NASA has a bunch of different calls on different topics, and they have a carbon cycle science program that's specifically about understanding the carbon cycle of, of terrestrial ecosystems. Um, it can be any type of ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, I'd been already doing research in dryland carbon cycling and through my work in when I was at the University of Arizona, my collaborators there. So I got together with a, with a few different collaborators who are working in the southwest um, and working on, on drylands um, to, to put in a grant that was aimed at really improving our understanding of carbon cycling in drylands. And, and what we're trying to do is is a mixture of different things. So we're trying to improve our mapping of different um, plant types, vegetation types, and soil cover in these regions because they're often very um, spatially heterogeneous. If you think of savannas, you know, you've got shrubs dotted everywhere and it's very difficult to map those types of ecosystems. And then once we hopefully can do that a little bit better, we're, we're going to take a lot of other measurements from the field, remote sensing measurements, and link uh, that kind of cover type, the plant cover type, to the functioning and their responses to uh, changing rainfall, et cetera. Um, and then the third part is to implement that in, into models. So it's really a kind of bringing together people working on different things, modeling, remote sensing, field measurements, 
and working across scales, you know, scaling up from understanding ecosystem processes at the field scale to modeling at the regional to global scale um, with remote sensing and satellite data, you know, in between there. So, yeah, that's how it came about, just a, a meeting of collaborators who wanted to continue working on that. With an uncertain future, McBean's research offers a chance for scientists to understand and perhaps predict the future of drylands through the use of modeling. McBean provided insight as to how this project will help in this endeavor. What we really want to do, and that's you know one of the goals of this project, is to make sure that we have the sort of right process understanding in the kinds of models that we use to make predictions like that, and then you know hopefully by the end of this project we we won't have um, developed everything that we need in the models um, to to look at those kinds of questions, but I think we'll be able to say you know run kind of future simulations under climate change scenarios and see whether we are seeing, for example, like an expansion of, of dryland vegetation. That, that's a real uh, overall goal, but I'd say we want to really test and develop the models a little bit better first before we say that more definitively. With hard work and dedication, Professor Natasha McBean's work is being recognized for its immense importance and is now funded by NASA. With research just beginning, there are limitless amounts of information to still be learned about our world's drylands. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinsaffel. In November of 2021, WFHB News Director Cade Young reported on a breaking story when a resident reported lead-contaminated ash and debris after a prescribed burn of a 1950s-era home as a training exercise for the Bloomington Fire Department. We turn to Cade Young for more. On Friday, the Bloomington Fire Department conducted a prescribed burning of a home at 1213 South High Street as a training exercise. Matt Murphy, owner of Four Square Construction and local landlord, says he felt a burning in his throat as he smelled what he suspected was lead-based paint. Murphy then bought several lead paint test kits at Bloomington Paint. He says all of the tests came back positive for lead. I was just sitting in my home office trying to get some things done probably a little bit before eight and saw flames leaping into the air through my neighbor's trees and remembered that there was some talk of, I knew they were performing various uh, practice exercises for the fire department at that house at 1213 South High Street. And apparently there were the sort of usual and outdated methods of public notification nestled somewhere in the legal ad about this event. So I walked down with coffee in hand and thought, well, this will be interesting to watch, stupidly assuming that all I's had been dotted and T's crossed. And I, I know there had been some abatement work done there uh, previously to remove asbestos, and they took off vinyl siding, and they removed the asphalt shingles. So I, I think I sort of assumed that in tandem with all that other prep work that they would have tested for lead, but it would appear that they did not. Pretty quickly, I smelled once the fire dropped down into the body of the house and began to ignite and heat the painted wood siding, which is original to the house, uh, which was built in the 50, early 50s or 1950. I knew this smell just from a contractor and painting work that it, it, it smelled like lead paint. And I also noticed at that point that this 
there was this fallout of chips and ash and debris that was just drifting westward into our neighborhood towards Bryan Park. And I ran back home and uh, went to Bloomington Paint and was able to buy a, a 3M test kit from them, uh, several of them, and uh, tested the samples right then and, then and there and determined that they, in fact, did have lead in them. Murphy lives about 150 yards directly west of the burn site on the corner of Ruby Lane and Nancy Street. He says he noticed ash and debris from the burn in his garden. He also spoke with his neighbors who saw similar debris. Uh, we've all been in touch, and there, uh, especially those people right in the immediate vicinity of the fire who really got hit heavily by the debris and fallout, they're uh, quite concerned and upset and hoping for some direction and communication from the city of Bloomington. We did have a visit from the fire chief. He stopped by a few households on Saturday morning, and I know they've posted, they have a website where you can sign up, uh, request remediation work at your house, and so people have been signing up for that. But beyond that, we haven't had a whole lot of contact or communication or direction from the city. The city has since responded to the possible lead contamination. A Google form was organized for residents to request remediation in the area at no cost. Quote, local health officials recommend keeping kids and pets away from the ash until testing indicates if it is hazardous, says Fire Chief Jason Moore in a press release. City officials say the fire department will contract with ServPro, a company that specializes in biohazard cleanup. The cleanup process will consist of using a HEPA-filtered vacuum, which the city says experts consider the best way to conduct this kind of cleanup. The Indiana Department of Environmental Management, who approved the permits required for the training, will take ash samples to measure the extent of the contamination. Murphy called a representative from IDEM, a few city officials, and the mayor's office. He described what he heard back after contacting them. I did call the Indiana Department of Health and spoke with their lead specialist. I called IDEM and spoke with their sort of response person who then made an appearance later in the day on Friday, Scott Frosch. He was supposedly their emergency responder, but it, it was a, a pretty casual response. Uh, he strolled around with some plastic bags and picked up chips, and I didn't see much of him after that. So IDEM did indeed sign off in this, and they were the ones who suggested or requested the removal of the vinyl siding and some of the other materials. And I think they had to check for mercury and various, you know, fluorescent lights and switches that are common in older homes, but bizarrely did not have anybody check for lead paint. The home was built in 1951, wherein lead paint was commonly used for homes of that period. It wasn't until 1978 that federal regulations banned the use of lead paint in residential homes. Lead paint can have devastating impacts on the human body, according to Gabriel Filippelli, the executive director for the Environmental Resilience Institute and researcher at IUPUI. Well, uh, it's particularly dangerous for children. So these are children like zero to about six, five or six years old. And that's because uh, 
they absorb a lot of the lead that they're exposed to. Adults don't absorb quite as much. And so not only do they absorb a lot of the lead, but their their neurological systems are developing. And lead is a neurotoxin. So um, it becomes particularly problematic. And so if children are lead poisoned when they're young, they have all kinds of learning uh, delays. They have behavioral issues, uh, lower IQ, documented lower IQ, um, uh, and a host of other behavioral and, and learning difficulties that dog them for the rest of their life. So it's a big issue, particularly for children. Philip Helly spoke on the health implications from inhaling lead from ash and debris. If you inhale, a couple of things happen. You, you think that it would, it would, all that material would go straight into your lungs, but actually a significant amount of what we inhale gets trapped, fortunately, in our sinuses. But uh, that's where... Um, with the mucus, you tend to swallow the particulates, the fine particulates uh, that you are exposed to, and and then they enter your gastrointestinal system, and that's particularly troubling, uh, just because that's the uh, uh, that's where you can really extract, if you're a child, especially extract a ton of the lead uh, out of that material that you inhaled and absorb it into your bloodstream. If you a proportion of it, if it's just inhaled. Uh, and goes into the lungs, our lungs don't dissolve that much lead, but they also are an issue as well. So it's, it's kind of a concern all around. According to the World Health Organization, once lead enters the body, it is distributed to organs such as the brain, kidneys, liver, and the bones. At high levels of exposure, lead attacks the brain and central nervous system, causing coma, convulsions, and even death. Children who survive severe lead poisoning may be left with intellectual disability and behavioral disorders. Even at lower levels of contamination, lead can affect brain development in children. It's worth noting that there is no safe exposure when it comes to lead. The WHO outlines that as lead exposure increases, the range and severity of symptoms and effects also increase. Filippelli says that both chronic and acute exposure to lead can have negative consequences for humans. So if there's a teeny bit of lead near zero, that's marginally safe. And it, and it can be safer if you're an adult. But even adults can experience uh, neurological and physical issues with a lot of lead exposure. Uh, we documented that on at, uh, shooting ranges, for example, uh, where you know there's a lot of lead in shooting ranges indoor and outdoor just because of the not only the bullets themselves, but the uh, the primer behind the bullets is uh, is enriched in lead, and so uh, so so in that case, I mean, the, we usually distinguish between what's called acute exposure and chronic. So if you have an event, a lead release event, you tend to have, you know, obviously acute exposure, uh, and and that can have you know a serious, dramatic, immediate effect. But even chronic exposure, so exposure to dust that's mildly lead contaminated, for example, over months at a time, that will also affect the same general result, which is that lead ends up in in your kid's blood, and then it ends up in the brain, and they have all those same neurological problems that I documented earlier. Matt Murphy sent a few of the paint chips off for testing to Filippelli. Murphy says he's hopeful for immediate results. He says that he and his neighbors are furious they may face contamination of lead near their homes. Well, I think we're all pretty uh, furious 
would be an accurate word. Um, and like I said uh, previously, I am hoping that by some stroke of luck, I drop these materials off at the lab and they test them and say, nothing to worry about, carry on. Um, but so far, the 3M lead test kits that we have used have indicated a, it's been a positive result for every single chip we've tested. Murphy says he hopes the incident leads to some sort of positive change in local policy so that this does not happen again in the future. Well, I, I hope some good comes of this uh, incident. I, I hope that whether it be local or state rules, regulations, and laws that govern these types of um, so-called controlled burns, uh, I hope perhaps they can be changed because it does not make any sense to burn a structure like this in a core residential neighborhood uh, and really anywhere if it's going to release toxins. Um, so there's, I know there's already some talk about discussing this with IDEM and perhaps state legislators, um, you know, to keep this sort of thing from happening again. The abatement contractor who removed the asbestos told me that he's been called to um, at least a dozen house burnings uh, as house, house structures were being prepared for a practice burn in Monroe, in and around Monroe County, out near Ellettsville. So I think these things happen probably more often than we know, uh, and I think something needs to change. WFHB News reached out to the fire department, but were unable to reach them before broadcast. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. Sunrise Bloomington, a local subset of the nationwide Sunrise Movement, recently made headlines for their calls for the Indiana University Foundation to divest from fossil fuels and reinvest in clean energy. WFHB correspondent Nathaniel Weinzaffel speaks with Allison Aldi, a member of Sunrise Bloomington, to better understand what they hope to achieve and how optimistic they are for the future. What you just listened to is from a recent protest from the nationwide climate change organization called the Sunrise Movement. Launched in 2017, the Sunrise Movement was founded to, quote, shift the Overton window on climate policy, unquote, and promote strong environmental policies, such as the Green New Deal. The movement organizes multiple protests for this cause and has many hubs throughout the country, including in Bloomington, Indiana. Sunrise Bloomington member Allison Aldi a student at Indiana University studying environmental health, recently spoke with WFHB to help better explain what the Sunrise Movement is and how the Bloomington Movement differs. The Sunrise Movement is a nationwide movement led by climate activists. And 
our goals are to promote sustainability and climate justice. Um, specifically for our Bloomington hub, we have the goal right now to encourage IU to disclose how much they have invested in fossil fuels, to divest, and then to reinvest into sustainable organizations. As Allison stated, Sunrise Bloomington seeks to have Indiana University, quote, disclose, divest, and reinvest, unquote. And Allison provides an understanding of what this means. Indiana University is a public institution. Where their investments are is not public information. So our first demand is to disclose. So we want Indiana University to disclose how much money they have invested in fossil fuels. Once we've reached that goal, our next goal is to demand that Indiana University divest from any fossil fuel industry. And then with that money that they have divested, we want them to reinvest into sustainable companies and sustainable organizations rather than organizations that are causing the destruction of our planet. Over the past few years, Sunrise Bloomington and other organizations have sought to have meetings with the Indian University Foundation to help further their cause. Allison explained what purpose the meetings hold in the overall goals of Sunrise Bloomington. With our meetings, we are hoping to meet with the IU Foundation. And by we, I don't just mean the Sunrise Movement Bloomington Hub. I mean the entire community, the IU community, um, the Bloomington community, the Indiana community. Um, we want to have an open dialogue with IU Foundation to make sure that the money that we pay with our tuition is going to sustainable organizations rather than to fossil fuel industries. And we want that conversation to be an open and public conversation. Back in October, the Indian University Foundation and Sunrise Bloomington had actually organized a face-to-face -face meeting to discuss these goals. However, the meeting was canceled by the IU Foundation due to Sunrise's call for the meeting to be both public and for the community to participate. Sunrise was motivated by the need for transparency, with IU hoping for a more private conversation. Despite the setback, Allison is hopeful for a future meeting. I think that Indiana University Foundation, based off uh, what they're saying publicly about their goals to sustainability, I think that they are taking the climate crisis seriously and the next step to prove to us that they are taking the climate crisis seriously is to divest from fossil fuels. Early this year, Indiana University named Pamela Witten as the 19th president of the university. After years of unsuccessful calls for the university to divest from fossil fuels, Sunrise Bloomington is optimistic that the change in leadership will finally bring them the opportunity they were looking for. You know, I'm really hopeful. Um, president Pamela Whitman, she recently made a statement about um, Indiana University's promise to sustainability, mentioning some things, including IUPUI and how we rank with sustainability worldwide. And like I kind of mentioned earlier, I think that the next step to really fulfilling that promise to sustainability and to climate justice is to divest from fossil fuels. So I personally feel like Indiana University wants to do this. While Sunrise Bloomington may seem extremely critical of Indiana University, 
Allison explains that this is not the case, and that their concerns come from a place of appreciation for the university as a whole. I am really proud to be a Hoosier. I myself am a student at Indiana University studying environmental health, and I'm really proud to be a part of this educational institution. Um, but I do really encourage that Indiana University disclose if they want to stick to their promise of sustainability. The best way to do that is to divest from fossil fuels. Nothing can go wrong by divesting from fossil fuels. And in fact, not divesting is going to have a bigger impact on the lives of not only Hoosiers, but the rest of the world. If any listener supports Sunrise Bloomington or wants to support, Allison states that you can find us on Instagram at Sunrise B Town, on Twitter at Sunrise B Town, and on Facebook at Sunrise Bloomington. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Our features were produced by Nathaniel Weinzapfel and myself. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noah Husky Schneider. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 